Welcome to View from the C-Suite, where we have candid conversations with female executives about key business challenges, career advice, and more. This series is brought to you by Wong Duty, the global experience and design unit for Infosys. I'm Skylar Matson, your host and president of Wong Duty. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to our global audience tuning in. Welcome to 2022's first episode of View from the C-Suite, Women Leaders in Conversation. I'm Skylar Matson, President of Wong Duty, the Global Experience and Design Unit for Infosys. Today's topic is driving change, reducing reluctance, reducing resistance. And I think this is such a great topic to kick off the year because January, right? January is this time where coming in fresh, we have new ideas, maybe some new strategies that we might want to try at work, and maybe even in our personal lives. I come into something new with a lot of energy and a lot of optimism, but eventually that starts to wear off. And that's because most of us don't really like change. It's human nature to be comfortable with what's familiar. But in business, we know that change can't happen with one person. It needs to be adopted. It needs to be amplified through an entire team or the entire organization. So what can we do? Change is necessary, but people don't like it. Luckily, I have two phenomenal guests joining us today. Both have navigated change by meeting this resistance head on, and they're here to share their stories. So before I introduce them, real quick, a reminder to all of you joining us today, thank you for being here. We'll take your questions during the last 15 minutes of the show. You do not need to wait until the last 15 minutes to start typing away. You can go into the Q&A right here in Zoom. Um, additionally, we hope that you will join us on Twitter. And if you use the hashtag we always use, women empower, e-empower, that way we can find your tweet, we can comment on it, and we can keep this important conversation moving forward. So with no further ado, I'm so honored to introduce Stephanie Michko, EVP and Chief Technology Officer of Charter Communications. Get this, Stephanie is our first Emmy Awards winning guest, having won two Emmys for her work in interactive television and new platforms when she was at Cablevision. She's a technology, television, and advanced advertising veteran who also serves as a mentor, helping young women see the benefit of pursuing careers in cable and technology. So important. It's so great to have you, Stephanie. Thank you so much. It's so nice to be here. Look forward to the conversation. Me too. Uh, I am also so excited to welcome Gabby Wagenhofer, CIO of Trading Shipping and Midstream at British Petroleum, BP. Prior to BP, Gabby held leadership positions at Castrol and SunGuard Energy. She was named one of the UK's most influential women in tech, no big deal, and has deep experience on what it takes to lead and to embed business transformation, which is exactly what we're talking about today. It's so perfect. Thank you for being here, Gabby. Hi. Thanks, Skylar. And thanks for having me here. Thanks for the invitation. So we're going to dive right in. We've heard how hard it is to implement change. I mean, if you look at the research and you look at the statistics, it's doom and gloom. 50 to 75% of change efforts will fail. But we know this. We know this going in. We know that there will be resistance. That is a good place for us to start. 
because then we can prepare for it. So I want to start at the very beginning. We want to implement a change initiative. Gabby, when you're preparing, when you're going to build something new, what are some of the ways you're already thinking about the reluctance or the resistance that might come from your team? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, so when I think about change, um, I think about a journey. Um, so imagine you decide to go on a road trip with your family. Um, so I'm here in London. Let's say I'm, I want to go to Scotland. Uh, it's a 10-hour drive. Well, you don't just take your family, put them in the car and start driving. Um, you actually, you know, first of all, you tell them that you're going on a journey and why are you going on a journey and, and uh, where are you going? Um, and then you make plans. You may actually map out, well, what's my route? What's my preferred route that I, that I want to take? And then on that journey, you may encounter, you know, a break that you have to put in or there is a uh, roadworks uh, or maybe there's a detour that you want to make because there's a great site you want to see. So you actually plan that journey and plan for these events that could actually happen. And, and when you actually then on your journey, you actually speak with your fellow passengers. You give them updates. You let them know how things are going. And you also listen. You listen to their needs and take that into account and actually make changes or, you know, adapt your, your, your journey that you're on. And that, for me, is the secret to dealing with um, resistance. So there's this two-way communication, this two-way conversation that is happening. So when you have people and when you lead people through uh, change, the more they are aware of where you're going, why you're going there, what it will feel like, and to also know that they're being listened to and their, their uh, thoughts are being taken into account, you will encounter less resistance because of that two-way com communication that you put in place. Um, we are currently at BP going through a massive change. I mean, we, are, uh, we have a new strategy, a new purpose, as a, a, a change that is actually affecting us on every single level in the organization. Um, and that's something that we as leaders have to help the organization go through. And in this particular case, um, it was such a change for me personally as well that I had to internalize this for myself, make sense of it, and actually make sense of it quite quickly, but then also rationalize it and help my organization go through the change, but also listening what, they, what concerns them and how you can actually address those concerns. So for me, it's all about two-way communication to, to address uh, resistance uh, and, and actually uh, work with it or uh, address it up front. Gabby, I love that analogy and I'm sure it can resonate with many of uh, our audience members listening in. I'm thinking about journeys. I'm thinking about my fellow passengers and all I'm hearing is, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Which is a beautiful reminder that updating on this journey of change, letting people know about the progress, listening to what they might need really helps bring people along with you and perhaps makes that nine hour road trip with your family less miserable. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Stephanie, I want to bring you into the conversation. And again, starting with preparation, I know data and analytics have played a huge part in your career and probably with every initiative that you've moved forward. How are we using data and analytics at the beginning in terms of driving change? Hey, thanks. That's a great question. And Gabby, I love your answer as well. And I just want to comment on that. You know, when you're trying to make change, really, and, and Gabby said it greatly, you have to tell people what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So at, at the very senior level, and when, when we do big programs and people are 
maybe not comfortable with what the change is or have to in- work harder or invest their time, gaining consensus beforehand. So by the time you get to the first time you're opening the door of your car, people are already sitting in the car going, this was my idea, right? I made this roadmap. And you're like, yay. Um, anyway, back to data. I am and have always been a huge fan of using data to inform and give insights to business decisions. So the interesting, I'll give a little story here because I like to do tangible things about data. When um, we're all talking about change and we just lived through probably the biggest global change we've experienced in our lives called COVID. Um, When I came to Charter, it was right before the pandemic. And as you know, when the pandemic hit, everybody, not just in the U.S., around the world went home and started working from home and their kids were going to school from home and you were doing your doctor's appointments from home on video. And what that did to our company was we experienced 30% increase in the utilization of our network that we would have seen over three years in six months. And we had to start to really understand what was going on there. So change happened to us. You know, we're talking about making change in the forward, but this is something that happened to us. And in order to adapt and address that change, we really had to step up our use of data. Because when when that change happened, technically, you know, people's behavior changed, but also the way our network was being used changed. And we had to really say, how do we see that? How do we respond to that? And how do we make sure our customers are getting the service they need? Because now they have critical things they're doing at home. So it was an instigator to use data in a different way. And long story, you know, we, we built a really great data science team. We had data science. We have great uh, visibility. But what I find with data is if you really use data to inform your decisions, you start to get away from, and you have all heard this in meetings or in brainstorming, I think this is a good idea. I think our customers would like this. I think we should do that. But when you watch and you use data, you get insights that help you really determine what is the right idea, what you should be doing, and what your customers want. And managing a big network, obviously, it's a day-to-day thing. So I I think one of the challenges, though, with data is... um, People can use data to tell any story they want. Mm -hmm. So if you own the data and you want it to say one thing, you can probably figure out how to represent that in a pretty graph. Um, Having real data and data governance that informs you in a valid way so that your whole organization is seeing the same information is really important. And that helps with uh, moving your change and your ideas forward because you're not getting different stories from different parts of your organization, right? As you've seen, you could see three reports on the same topic and they tell you three different things. So using data to drive, and I think it's it's really liberating when you come to um, a discussion and you want to talk about why you're doing something or why you want to take on a new uh, agenda or why you need to make a change. Showing data, I think, settles everybody a little bit where they can say, okay, I can now get behind that because they understand what's happening in, uh, you know, in the world. I, me personally, um, I ask a lot of questions about data. So anytime someone shows me data, I'm like, well, where'd that come from? You know, what were the inputs? Who managed it? Whatever. But I think data is important for um, real successful change because not only does it help you get there, it helps you see if you're making progress. 
right? So I can go on and on about data. I think measurement's important. You can't get better if you can't see what you're doing, um, right? So measuring how you get better is, is important. And I just want to make one more comment on what Gabby said about her road trip, because the, one of the things you said that was so resonated with me was you're going to make a detour and maybe you're going to change your path halfway through. So, you know, change is about being more agile. And I use that word a lot, but agile thinking where as you go down the path, your inputs change. You might find out something different to Gabby's point. You might see that, hey, that highway's got construction and you're not getting through there. So you have to make another choice. I think that's getting your teams comfortable with um, more. I don't want to say real time because that scares people, but, you know, the ability to make decisions, pivot to do inspect and adapt conversations where you look at what you've done, you say, was that the right thing to do? Really helps people get comfortable with change. And then they're not, you know, if you make a mistake or if you go off the road and you only go off a half a mile, not a big deal. If you drive a hundred miles off the path, you might have a problem. So that idea of, you know, looking at what you're doing and using the data and being able to adapt is really, really um, important as a mindset for people. Right. Because when you think about change, it's the unknown that people are resisting. If you have data that's showing this is the right path to go. And if you use the data along the way, even if the data then shows that you might need to course correct, it takes some of the worry, the will this work, the subjectivity out of it. And there's an objective guide in the data along the way, which I think is a helpful reminder for all of us. I want to go back to something you said in the beginning, and I kind of want to, I kind of want to poke some holes in this. You know, let's get consensus at the start. Let's, let's talk to people. This change isn't going to come out of the blue. They will have been sort of brought on. They sort of know where we're going. Ideally, you get that consensus and you bring everyone along with you. But in real life, Sometimes you've got the people who are gung-ho for it. Uh, sometimes you have the people who are going to dig their heels. They're never going to get there. Then you've got some people who will probably come if, if they can understand your vision. And, you know, Gabby, I, I want to come back to you and ask, you know, when do you really build the consensus? And when do you have to take the lead and say, I know some of you aren't feeling this, but we've got data. We've got this path. This is, this is what we're going to do. Time to get on board. Hmm. Yeah, good, good. Um, I would say, um, for me, um, the way what your approach you take, are you assertive and you go in and say, that's the mandate, you know, here's, uh, this is what it's going to be, or is it a consensus uh, driven approach? For me, this depends on um, the choices you can make or the options that you have. So let's call it a choice, the choice points that you have. I think that there is, um, there's, Often we have programs where there is just that we must do it uh, component to it. So there's a mandatory component. It could be a regulatory change. It could be a cyber uh, change. It could be a organizational change. So it, there is a there is a drive that actually comes from maybe something that is out of out of your control, um, out of my control. For example, as a leader, uh, it is it's just driven because we actually pivoting as an organization into a new world. For example, so I think that's where the messaging that you use is a lot more assertive because there is no choice so you you have you don't have much optionality around it but they're usually in these programs there are ways of where you can actually get the consensus or use consensus to especially get buy-in from 
the users who may have to adopt or the organization that have to, has to change. So, and this, these are things, so where's that optionality and how do you build the consensus? These are things like your sequencing and your phasing of a program or, or a, a change rollout, or um, it might be a training or how you communicate or how you engage. So you can, you can actually adapt that. You can adapt it to different regions, countries, whatever your remit is, but that's where you have, you listen and you actually build the consensus. And it goes back to what I said earlier, this um, two-way con conversation and communication builds the buy-in. Um, and then even though it's a mandatory push and you have to be assertive of the overall message, you can actually get consensus in the smaller parts of a change. And that, that way you can get the buy-in. I'll give you a quick example. Um, we had a global program um, at some point where we had to roll out a, a new expense system. 25 to 30 countries, uh, lots of different businesses, a mandate because the system was end of service. We had to do it in two years. So there was a very strong mandate, and that was just the message. We have to do it, get on board, but we listen, we sequence, we figure out how this impacts your portfolio. We actually make sure that you get special support for this special group. And so we, 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 we got the consensus on that level, but still pushed ahead with the mandatory uh, rollout. That's a helpful way to frame it. This is the change that needs to happen. Back to your road trip, there's a lot of different routes you can take to get to one destination and allowing yeah. the input from your team to impact that component of change probably takes the unknown, this is happening to me, I'm not a part of it, out of it. And I think that's a really helpful way to frame it. You know, a lot of times in view from the C-suite, I'm, I'm talking to these accomplished leaders there are so many success stories to share. It's best practices. It's wisdom. And we all know that everything doesn't always go according to plan. And that in all of our careers, there are things that we look at and say, I did an okay job there. And there are things that maybe even in the moment or looking back, we think, I could have handled that differently. And I think if this happens again, or I'm, I'm faced with the situation again, I'm going to change course. And so I'd love to, to pose to both of you, Gabby, let's stick with you and then I'll come back to you, Stephanie. Is there an example from some point in your career where you didn't handle change as skillfully as you could have? And what did you learn from that? And how has that impacted you as a leader today? Um, yeah, I, 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 uh, there's one particular example that, um, that still haunts me because I, I, I should have done this differently. <laughs> Um, so it's a few years back and uh, I, I had uh, a new role. I had applied for a new role and uh, got, the, got the job. A big step up it was an a, a MVP. And um, so you, you step into your role, you take your first three months to establish, well, what's the business all about? What are the drivers? What's my team looking like? And what are the programs that are running? So uh, I stepped into the role uh, and within the three months, I, I immediately felt that there was this particular program. There was something off the rails. It was just, uh, it just didn't feel right. And, um, and as I started digging uh, further into it, there was definitely something there. And I started to document, get the data, work with the team, and then started to escalate. So to the business leaders, to the, the sponsors, and, um, and made a recommendation to make an intervention. And I was actually overruled and I let it go. And that's the piece, I let it go instead of actually being much, have a very a stronger conviction and stronger voice to actually say, there's something wrong. I'm not going to let it go. 
if you need more data, I'm going to give you more data to, to Stephanie's point. I will show that there is, there is a, uh, an intervention needed. Um, and then it would have actually resolved, it uh, would ended up in a different place because there were issues then uh, eventually with, with that program. I think my biggest message here is that you have an instinct from the work or the experience that you have. You build up experience of how to do change, but you also have an instinct when something is off the rails. And I think trusting that instinct with the background of your uh, experience is, is really important. And I, yeah, I should have had a much uh, stronger and louder voice to actually make the intervention. Great lesson. Great lesson for all of us. Stephanie, how about you? That's a great story. I, I feel like I wake up every day thinking, <laughs> wow, I should have done something different yesterday. Um, and, and maybe that's because I'm, I'm, I'm in really in technology, right? So that's always moving so quickly. And there's, you could always look back. I try not to be rear view. I think the biggest, um, and this is just not once, but multiple times in my career, when trying to push um, a big new initiative to whatever organization I've been in quite a, you know, a few organizations over the years, but it's always the same um, that I didn't get, and maybe uh, Gabby's conviction word is a good one, but I didn't get enough inertia to the program to mm -hmm. actually get it to move. And you talk about um, your gut feeling or your instinct. And I, I can ex you know, explain meetings I've sat in where my stomach's going, oh my gosh, I didn't bring the right data. I'm off. They asked questions I didn't anticipate. I couldn't, you know, push the idea forward. And then because of whatever reason you do, you soften your conviction. And I think there's been, I could talk about a bunch of those situations in, in my career. But what I will say today, and I don't know if it just comes from being fearless. I have this thing about, you know, I recognize people who are who are uh, maybe paralyzed by fear, fear of change, fear of judgment, fear of being wrong. Um, I kind of gave that up and shed those things a long time ago. And now I say, I'm always going to be wrong. I'm always going to be afraid. There's always going to be change, right? And we move through that. But um, to really make change happen, I'll go back to consensus. And it's, it's interesting because you, you'll never get consensus and it goes wrong. And when those programs go wrong, what happens is people who are not on board with you or not supporting you, and you know who they are, you know your allies, you know the people against, they become the people that are trying to sabotage whatever it is you're working on, right? So my advice there is you need to pay more attention to those people. Go and understand people. Go and understand what their reluctance is. Have that two-way conversation that Gabby described and really bring it to a human level. I mean, I find, you know, these days and I guess in all of our careers, especially with COVID, as leaders, we're spending more time talking to our employees about personal things. How are you feeling? Are you afraid? What's going on? Is you, you know, you're having problems working at home. As leaders, our job now is to support all of this new change, right? And we have to do it. So understanding people and talking to them in a really authentic way. You know, the reason I, I make the comment that I wake up every day thinking everything I did yesterday was wrong is because I'm extremely humbled by the, by the expertise of my colleagues and people around me. And I'm very, very curious about what's going on. I use the word voracious curiosity. When you wake up every day and go, you know, I, whatever I knew today is great, but I need to know more. 
um, helps you get that camaraderie and that respect because when you're confident enough to say, hey, we're going to make this change and I don't know, it's going to be bumpy, it might be fine, but I know it's the right thing to do, whether it's for your company, your group, your product, whatever it is you're working on, getting people to feel good about it is just as important as getting people to understand what they're doing. So I'll use data on my very analytical side of the brain. But, you know, my human side of the brain, data is great. But as human, as a human leader, you really have to be in touch with what's driving your team because you can't get flow, which is what we want, right? We want all our people working together, sharing ideas, helping each other, identifying issues in another area and then trying to help as opposed to just saying, hey, this is what I'm doing and I have to go from point A to point B. So I think that's the new transformation that that leadership in general is experiencing. And I I know it's hard for a lot of people. Like there's a lot of people who don't want to be soft in the office. And I'm not going to say it's a women's thing that we're better at it, but in general, it's not something we would bring to the office. And I just think, you know, from this moment in time going forward to compete, to deal with the complexity of the world, to deal with the rate of change, um, you know, that's going on in all of our businesses, we have to make sure our people are engaged. And um, that's really front and center for me most of the time um, when I talk about change. And I've had some fail. Uh, We've had, I've had really good change events and you get a lot of momentum. And then all of a sudden you get blindsided by some other event or another part of your organization that says, no, we're not doing that. And they can derail you from the sidelines. And I've seen this happen. It's demoralizing to people. But, you know, as Gabby said, you figure out your new map, you adjust, and maybe you take a little bit of a different path. So, um, yeah, that's what I think about that. I mean, so many great points in there. I mean, we're humans working with humans. It's not all business. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, pre-pandemic, it was update me on the project and how's this project going and how's your work? And now it's, how are you? Are your kids still not back in school? What's going on? I mean, I think really taking care of our teams on the personal level and ourselves is, is so important. And, you know, it got me thinking your team members are all different. Everybody has a different style. They probably have different, they, they all have, they need something different from you or in a different style from you for them to be their best. And Gabby, I was thinking you've, you've worked in the UK and the US, you got your MBA in Vienna, you speak German. Are there cultural differences uh, in how like reluctance might be expressed or in your own management style when you're dealing with global teams? Yeah, yeah, there definitely are. Um, there is one uh, hook that I actually going to make to what Stephanie just said is people need to be engaged. I think that's the overarching story that I that I see and feel when I work with different cultures, nations, countries. Um, so I've I've been in the lucky position and fortunate position to actually have jobs where I always had global reach. So either global programs or global teams. Um, and, and that is, uh, I mean, it's enriching. It's just, uh, it's just fun to have that. Um, what I, the way I've experienced this and, uh, and I, I put it into again, the BP setting is that we have a, as a corporation have, have, um, we have a language, we have a, a BP language and a BP culture. Um, but that language doesn't translate, uh, necessarily to, um, the individual 
uh, region or culture and the, and the, the embedded behaviors. Not always, because um, there's a huge difference in when what we say and how we say it, that how that actually then gets interpreted by the different cultures. Um, and so my, my biggest learning in all of this is being really aware of the, of the different uh, cultures. And um, so I'm, you know, from Austria, uh, have a Germanic um, behavior and, and, and way of operating and, and working. And um, I find it when we, when we deliver change into that region, um, I can relate to that. And I know how it will, uh, what, I, what I will encounter. I will get very direct questions. Um, usually they want to get straight to the point. They want facts. They want clarity. And I can give that because that's also the language or the behavior or the, the tone that I said as well. Um, it's very different when you, we had uh, several programs where we had to deliver change, in, change into, let's say, Asian countries. Um, and we often go in and have these broadcasts, these, these, these town halls and, and big communication. And then I, do, I wouldn't get any challenging questions back and, and sometimes no questions at all. And what I found out is that that's not the style that doesn't work there. Um, that communication is much in, in smaller settings. It's uh, you have to have your allies and your ambassadors that you use either within your program in the region um, or, or people you know in the region to bring out um, the concerns that are there because only because they are not asking a question doesn't mean that they are not going through the whole change journey. So, so you just need to find a way of finding out what the concerns are, ensuring that you're listening and that you're, you're receiving those concerns and actually, uh, and then making or reacting and, 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 uh, and using the knowledge that you have received and, and getting the buy-in uh, and, and delivering the change that way. Um, you will probably smile now because UK and US is actually quite an interesting uh, experience for me. <laughs> um, so I worked in the US and I found that uh, in the US, the English language and the tone was a lot more direct, a bit similar to kind of more Germanic background that you get to the point, you use the language to actually get uh, actions, uh, to get actionable. And um, and yeah, so it's, it's, uh, the, and, and the questions are also quite direct. I don't always get this in the UK. It's a lot more um, softer and there are lots, lot more words being used that I sometimes feel, well, have I now delivered the message in the right way? Has it come across? Did I answer the question? Because it, it was disguised with a lot of words. So it's just my experience that I, in that instance, I have to go back and make sure, have we actually reached or have we uh, responded to the concerns? And uh, and again, you need that two-way communication. Sometimes need to actually have your allies and ambassadors on the ground. Overall, I think that the, the main piece here is that um, people want clarity, certainty, communication, feedback. So it is about finding ways. How do you communicate with the different cultures and uh, and regions and uh, uh, yeah and, and people and how they operate. I have to just respond to this, if you're okay, Skylar. <laughs> of course. Um, because, you know, I'm in the U.S. and I'm from New York, and I sit in meetings all the time, and, and I say in my head, couldn't you have said that in, like, two words instead of all those <laughs> sentences? Um, but, yes, and, and to that point, obviously, there's cultural um, differences, right, when you move around the world and you have different backgrounds. But inside your own company, you have cultural communication challenges and differences mm -hmm. just between women and men, um, mm -hmm. different ethnic backgrounds. There's lots of uh, cultural about not speaking out or speaking behind. And to your point, uh, Gabby, when you get in tune with that and pay attention and meet people where they are, 
um, that's when you get the consensus. Because yes, you you will just talk or communicate past each other. But like I said, I'm I talk really fast, and I think three words is better than a hundred. So. <laughs> Stephanie, I want to build on that. Throughout your career, there have been so many times where you were the only woman at the table. And what have you learned from that? Have you, can you note points of resistance? Can you note things about your own style, management style, the way you communicate? We've talked about conviction, things that you've learned to help you be more successful as the only woman in the room. Yes, I could tell you a hundred stories. <laughs> and we need uh, another hour. <laughs> yeah. So look, uh, you know, it's not, I don't know if it's as big an issue today as it was like when I went to college. I like to tell this story. Um, when I went to engineering school, I grew up in a family of two uh, brothers, two brothers. I'm in the middle. My dad's an electrical engineer. We graduated from the same school with the same degree. We actually worked in the Department of Defense at the same time. So I had no. I had no idea what it was going to be like when I first decided to go to engineering school, right? I didn't know I was going to be the only one in the class. I didn't know that my professors were going to be like, what are you doing here? Like, this was odd to me because I had grown up in an environment where, you know, we didn't really differentiate between what you could and couldn't do based on your sex. But, you know, I had a really rough time in my first, uh, my first uh, experience in engineering school. And I'll make a long story short because I tell this sometimes. And I had a professor who just didn't think I should be in the class. But it was, it was electrical engineering 101. And I, I did fine. We had two tests. Coming into the second test, I'm like, I get to the end of my test book and my math is not working out. But I did the circuit analysis. I thought everything was great. And I must have made a mistake somewhere. And I thought, well, maybe I'll get a 70 and not, you know, not a, a hundred. And it turns out the professor failed me for the course. And, you know, um, and I'll, this is the, I'll give you this advice because my dad gave me this advice. And the most important thing that I learned from that experience in the math that I did, I was extracting an equation and I had 10 times 10 in an expansion and I wrote down 20 instead of 100. So that's how I failed. But the joke here is what I learned was 10 times 10 is not 20, right? So you have to get the, the answer right. So that was on me. And I really didn't take the victim mentality there. I said, that's on me. I, I, didn't, I didn't play at the level I needed to. But you know, when I went back and talked to my dad about this and said, I don't know about this. You know, I'm the fish out of water here. I like it. And, and he just said to me, very mad, matter of fact, and grew up in Brooklyn, so I won't use the profanity, but, you know, screw that. Pick yourself up, take your course in the summer, go do what you want, and don't let anybody else be the one who defines your definition of success. So that, to me, was a really important uh, lesson and advice, because I did that. I went back to school. I got a bunch of jobs. And then when I was in these meetings throughout my career where I'm the only one, um, and I, I don't know if any of you experienced this, but in my early career, I was the one bringing like the leadership and the information to the table and people would talk right by me. They talk to the person next to me, the man and say, well, what about this? What about that? And, and then that person would have to be like, you know, you, you got to talk to her. But I think if you, for everyone, you don't have to be a woman to experience this. Everyone experiences this, right, in your career. You just need to be in that moment 
and not take offense and not let your own, you know, emotion and ego get in the way and say, well, look, this is what it is. And after a while, for me personally, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, but you get known as someone who plays in the space and then you become a little bit less different. I never, I never, a lot of people give you advice, well, try to be more like the people that are in the room. I would not give that advice to anyone. Um, my advice, be who you are, be the ve best version of who you are, bring what you have to the table and adjust your communication where you need to. So even today, there's lots of situations where I'm the only woman in the room, but I'm particularly comfortable with that. I make my voice heard when it needs to be heard. I am very in tune with the communication style of others. So that's where I think, you know, you have to pay some attention if you are in a situation. The good news now is that I'm not always the only woman in the room. We have lots of great, you know, women executives, as you can see on this panel and other places. So it's getting better. But there's a feeling of isolation and being invisible that you really have to not personalize because if you feel like you're isolated and you're invisible, you will start to behave that way. And that will impede your ability to make your, you know, your voice and communication heard, whether it's in your organization, in anything, you know, any uh, situation that you find yourself. So, uh, like I said, I have a hundred examples of this, but uh, I just, like I said, I wake up every day and go, I'm just, this is what I do. So, uh, Try to make it work and be and just be authentic. That's my that's my thing. I can't be if you try to be something you're not or act in a way. Like I said, women, men, anything act in a way that's different than what used at your core. That's exhausting. That takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot out of you. So once you get to be comfortable in your own self, be that person, and then everything else will flow through. We're, we're okay. sort of Can I come yes. in as well? Really quickly. I love that story. And also, it shows the journey that you've been on, Stephanie, that, you know, uh, as you actually um, grow in roles, uh, it, that confidence builds. Uh, when you're in a room as, as a woman by yourself, uh, you know, finding, finding your corner. Um, I think what just in, as you're early in the career or people who are in the mid-career, uh, I think you can almost... Um, practice that because this is where data again can be a real ally so you data and if you have the right data well articulated um it just speaks for itself so in your in those meetings when you bring the data in the information that is actually needed for a change or for, for whatever the situation is you speak to the data it cannot really be questioned if you have the foundation there and that actually shows that allows you to be convincing confident and the more and more you do that and practice that, you actually will get the reputation of being confident, reliable, and that actually brings uh, you as a as a female into the room, not being questioned, and will actually allow you to actually be quite confident in the room itself as well. So I think there's a way of of practicing that and getting on that path yeah. of that journey of growth. I'm looking at the audience questions and they're building okay. up. The audience is so engaged and it's fantastic. <laughs> but I want to stick on this path that we're sort of organically getting to, which is some career advice. It's some lessons learned. It's the things that you're doing now that you've learned along the way that are, are really fueling your success. So I want to take a great question from Stephanie. What would you tell your 30-year-old self that you know now? Yeah, I hate this question because it implies that I'm way... Way not way past thirty. But, right, it was just three years ago, but yeah. still, um, look, you've grown in um, three years. 
you know, I love, I love this question because I don't really answer it and you'll see why, you know, what I say to my 30 year old self is thank you because it was everything I did at 30 and what I, and I did the best I could at the time. So I try not to, uh, harper too much around, you know, should have, would have, could have, I always try to look forward and I give myself gratitude for everything that I've done, you know, uh, in the past. But the one thing I will say uh, that I would advise to 30-year-olds, 20-year-olds, 50-year-olds, whatever, is the advice I would say would be more conscious of the people around you. Pay attention to who the decision makers are in your organization. Don't be so formal. We talked about, you know, communication, but, you know, I work, I do mentor a lot of people throughout my career and and I do it uh, very in a professional way through some organizations. But, you know, do the flyby where you just stop. I do this today. I don't, I never stop doing this. I walk up and down the hall and I just say, hi, how are you? Good morning. Now, even, you know, now in the COVID world, it's kind of hard to do. Um, But I will say that as a, you know, as a younger executive, I was much more um, career driven uh, result driven to what we said before, how's the project going? Look what I did. Look, it's going along fine. And not as focused on that collaboration and bringing people together. The other advice I will give to, uh, if, to my 30 year old self was I should have eaten better and worn a lot more sunscreen. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all very important reminders. I ask this question a lot and I've never had somebody share thank you to their 30-year-old self. And I think that's such an important reminder to love ourselves, to give ourselves grace, and to be proud of even the mistakes that we've made because that meant we were going for it and we were learning from it. Gabby, how about your 30-year-old self three years ago, once again? Uh, yeah, um, I um, and I, I use again what what I um, I know Stephanie actually mentioned that she's mentoring people as well, and and uh, and I, I often use uh, kind of three themes, and and they would apply to me as a thirty year old as well. Um, for me, there is be curious. Uh, it's it's the learning um, ambition culture that we we should have, and it's not just curious in the area that you're in, also in the world around you. We, we've we've had so many changes; the world's just changing around us. Um, if you're curious, you, you see opportunities, you hear, uh, you learn, you're, you're, you you grow. Uh, I think that's the that will be the first first big thing. Um, then secondly is a bit on the the flyby, but I say connected, be connected, network. Um, um, be on people's minds when they make decisions and that you can do that by taking people out for coffee, having a conversation, uh, learning what's going on in the company. And maybe back to Stephanie's point, figure out who are the decision makers and maybe do it targeted that way. That you actually also try to get one of those decision makers get closer and, and have a have an informal coffee conversation. I think that networking and being connected um, uh, is really important. And then the third piece is, Aim high, aim for the stars. Um, you know, find a job that you think is what where you want to be and then map it out what would it take to get there um, and go on that journey. And you might be surprised to see what's actually possible, but aim for the stars. Aim for the stars, anything is possible. <laughs> Another great question from our audience. Was there a best boss you ever worked for that you've sort of thought, oh, when I become a boss, I'm going to do that thing because that was so supportive or so inspiring 
to me. Um, yes, so for me, I, there's one particular boss that left the biggest mark um, in early on in the career. Uh, it was my, my first female boss that I had in the US, uh, Debbie. Um, she saw my potential and more early on. She never doubted that I um, could achieve um, you know, great things. She always stretched me. She always gave me these extra opportunities, but also create space that I could step into. And she really stretched me. At times, it felt like a sink or swim experience. But she was always there at the right time to just lift me up so that I wouldn't drown, but actually to an extent lift me up that I would actually swim stronger. So uh, I'm incredibly um, thankful for, for her advice and, and her belief in me. And, uh, and she's been an, uh, a great mentor ever since. Sink or swim. That's how many of us learn. <laughs> I want to squeeze in one more quick question for you, Stephanie. This is an excellent question from our audience. Is there something you've learned outside of work that has helped you as a leader? Oh, yes. Um, well, anyone who has kids knows that you learn something every day. Um, yeah, I, I just think, look, I've, I haven't had people look at successful people and think, oh, my gosh, their life must be so nice, right? So um, my advice to everyone is remember, everybody that you come in contact with is dealing with something that you have no idea about. It could be illness. It could be a divorce. It could be a child that has an issue or whatever. So I learned very early in my personal life because, like I said, I haven't walked. A, it has not been like a, a cakewalk here. There's lots of turns and twists. Is that when you get your priorities straight, because you understand that your health, your relationships, right, things that happen in your life are so much more important. In fact, in that order, your health first, your family second, because you can't take care of your family or be part of a family if you don't have good health. And then your aspirations and like your role of what gets you juiced and what you're really passionate about. So outside of work, I've learned to be really humble about other people and really, really respectful and in tune with the state of people's lives because, you know, tragedy is everywhere. And if you don't understand that uh, other people or yourself go through trauma in your life, all kinds of reasons. I mean, getting a root canal can be trauma <laughs> to some people, right? Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I learned really on that, you know, life is going to punch you in the head a couple of times. And to your point about, Gabby, about networking, when you have a really good network and you have a personal relationship with people, even if they've never helped you or they're not in your line of business, those people rally around you when you need help, meaning something happens in your life that's going to derail your career or something happens in your career that's derailed your career. And now you have to go figure out your life. So those are that's what I learned about being a leader. I'm, um, you know, sometimes people tell me I'm too in tune with everybody, but I, I have a deep respect for my personal life, for people and understanding that you just don't always know the journey that they've been on. And sometimes people behave in ways that you don't understand because they have something else going on. So um, that's kind of my my advice there. Keep your, your health, family, and, and your business life in the right priorities. And I think that that's good advice for everybody. 
And I agree. And time flies when I'm enjoying everything you have to share with us. I want to wrap on time. This was a journey. We started out talking about change and driving change and motivating teams. And we've sort of along the journey landed on empathetic leadership and the human behind your coworker and checking on them and taking care of yourself. And I couldn't think of a better way to end our first episode of the year. So thank you, Gabby. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you to our audience. That is a wrap on episode eight of View from the C-Suite, Women Leaders in Conversation. I look forward to seeing you all next month when the conversation continues. To find out more about Wong Duty's work transforming businesses through human experience, go to wongduty.com. If you're a woman in the C-suite and would like to be a guest on this show, please reach out to me at womenleaders at wongduty.com.